Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. This time I'd like to invite you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. I'm sorry, 18. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Exodus 18. That'll be next week, 19. So as you're finding your way to Exodus chapter 18, uh, can I just take a moment to wish... Uh, all of you who have not yet had a, an opportunity to do so, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you. Um, today, maybe you're able to celebrate with your, your father. Uh, maybe you're not and you're thinking about him. Maybe you'd like to celebrate with your, your sons, the, the people who made you fathers. <laughs> uh, and you're not, but you're thinking about them and are mindful. Or maybe you're today thinking about a dad who had such a role in your life and yet now he is with our Lord. You need to know that all of those thoughts, emotions, feelings, expressions that bubble up within you and all the ones that don't today, they're all welcome here. And so I wish you a happy birthday, happy, not happy birthday. That's, that's Will. Will Compton's birthday was today, right? But I do wish you a happy Father's Day. The little kid was asked, hey, what is uh, Father's Day? And the little kid said, oh, that's easy. That's just like Mother's Day, except the present doesn't cost as much. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny because it's true. <laughs> All right. So we are going today to, to continue our exploration, exploration of the book of Exodus. And we find ourselves in a curious spot today. Because now we have made our way through the first major section of the book of Exodus. And the first major section includes 15 chapters. 15 chapters make up a, a section of Exodus that is meant to convey one message. And that is, you can be free. And all of the stories that take place in the first 15 chapters are all about getting free from the enslavement the people experienced in Egypt. Amazing stories that, that emerge from those first 15 chapters. And we have said now for a couple of weeks that we are in a new section of Exodus, the next major section, which is Exodus 16, 17, and 18. And this section is what we've been referring to as the wilderness sojourn, walking in the wilderness because we now move to a part of Exodus where yeah they've been set free but they have to decide do I really want this now all the stories that emerge out of Exodus 16 17 and 18 are stories that now that follow because yes you've been set free you're no longer slaves in Egypt but that means a different way of life here in the wilderness it means that you get bread a different way you eat quail at a particular night time of night right and so the way to walk in the wilderness will look different than Egypt. And, and it's filled with stories in which they question whether they really want it or not. Now, we've been kind of musing over the last few weeks about this human condition that we all have, which is that sometimes we prefer the enslavement that we used to know over the freedom that we haven't yet figured out. 
Sometimes in these stories, there are stories about, oh, we should have just stayed in Egypt. Oh, we should have, we were so much better in Egypt. We had places to bury the dead. We had great food. And we had meat and boiling cauldrons, which was really not true. They just, they just think of their past a different way when they're questioning their future. Kind of like me and you. And here we come to Exodus chapter 18, and the reason that I find it fascinating today is because it's on Father's Day, and the way we line up these stories is interesting because Exodus chapter 18 is crammed with daddy issues. Yeah. It is. I'm, I didn't write it. I'm just... It's crammed with daddy issues, and I want us to look closely at it because in just a moment we're be about to be introduced once again to his father-in-law, and his father-in-law brings the grandkids, Moses' two sons, who have curious names, and it all means something to us. And I think, I think we may find something powerful in this, in this part of the text. But to do so, I'm going to have to read a long passage of text to you, okay? It's longer than, than normal. I'm going to read all 27 verses because I want you to feel the rhythm and the rhyme, the kind of gait, the pacing of this text, so that we can then back up and see what it is that it has to say to us today. So beginning in chapter 18, verse 1, listen for the word of God. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, the father-in-law Jethro took her back along with her two sons, the, the name of the one was Gershom. You might want to mark that and remember. We're going to come back to that. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came into the wilderness where Moses was encamped at the mountain of God bringing Moses' sons and wife with him. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Uh, with your wife and, your, and her, her two sons, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed down and kissed him. Each asked after the other's welfare, and they, they went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had beset them along the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because he delivered the people from the Egyptians when he dealt arrogantly with them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. In other words, he worshipped, which is another point to mark as we come back to it. And Jethro worshipped, and Aaron came with all the elders and, and of Israel, and they eat bread with Moses, the father-in-law, in the presence of God. Now, the next day, <laughs> this is great, the next day, Moses sat as a judge for the people, while the people stood around him from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw 
all that he was doing for the people. He said, what is it that you are doing for the people? A sharp guy. <laughs> Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father, because the people, uh, they come to me to inquire of God. <laughs> when, they, when they have a, a dispute, they come to me and, and I decide between one person and another and and I make known to them the statutes and instructions of God. Moses' father-in-law said, what, what you're doing is, is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. You know what? Just a little sidebar. If I could only preach one verse out of this entire chapter, do you know it would be that one? It is too heavy for you, and you, you cannot do it alone. I don't know what burden you brought into the room or on campus here today, but the truth is and many of us could listen to that one verse and meditate all week long and hear the good news ringing in our ears. The task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me, this is Jethro, I will give you counsel and God will be with you. You should represent the people before God and do bring their cases before God, teach them the statutes, instructions, make them known uh, the way that they are to go and the things they are to do. You should also look to able men among you, uh, among the people, uh, men who fear God, who, who, who are trustworthy, who hate dishonest gain. Set such men over as officers, um, officers uh, over thousands and then hundreds and then fifties and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people at all times. Let them bring every important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves so that it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this and... God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all these people will go to their home in peace. So Moses listened. He listened to his father-in-law and they did what he said. Moses chose able men from all Israel and appointed them as heads over the people, as officers over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And they judged the people all the time and hard cases they brought to Moses, but the minor cases they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went off. To his own country. Today I want to talk to you for just a few moments about three things. Dad jokes, father figures, and names of the game. Dad jokes, father figures, and names of the game. Let's pray together. God, far be it for this time of shared space and shared worship be used to listen only to the words of one man. May what I have to say be more than just my words, but speak to all of us that we may be able to hear a word of good news from your holy scriptures. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Dad jokes. <laughs> Dad jokes. So in my family, I am the undisputed reigning world champion of dad jokes. 
It's because I'm the only dad in the family, in the, in the house. I'm the only dad in the house. And so I have the worst jokes in the house, and my family lives with a constant groan. You know what a dad joke is, right? You guys know, you know what a dad joke is. A dad joke is a joke that requires a higher-than-average intelligence, is what I'm going to say. <laughs> Come on. Yes, sir. An example of a dad joke, I'm going to bless you with one here right now. You knew that, that, that Noah kept bees, right? Noah was a beekeeper. We have, actually, we have good record. We have record of his beekeeping. Do you know where he kept them? In the archives. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, it gets better. Hold your applause to the end. There was a friend who wanted to make another friend laugh, and you know what he did? He said, I'm going to give my friend 10 jokes. In fact, they're going to be puns. I love puns. He said, I'm going to give my friend 10 puns, hoping that he would laugh. And do you know that no pun in 10 did? Come on. Come on. All right, true story. True story. We're making college visits a couple of weeks ago. You know, we're at that stage right now, and we, we've made some visits to some really great campuses, Samford University, Elon University, we went to Wake Forest University, just gorgeous, gorgeous campuses. And we roll up, true story, roll up on the campus of, of Wake Forest University, and we, we roll up, and it is just beautiful. I mean, there are trees, these massive trees, old trees, oaks and maple, and they create great shade spots all over campus. It is truly stunning. And we're looking, we're trying to orient to see where we're supposed to be, the building where we're supposed to meet, and I can't find that building, and I can't tell if this is a dorm over here, because you know, I'm straining to see a clear shot. And I say to my family, huh, we can't see Wake Forest for the trees. <laughs> nothing. I got nothing from them. No love whatsoever. There's a problem in the King home, but I am here to tell you that there is something about a dad joke that wants to be preached today. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know that thing that you just did? The thing that everybody does when they hear a dad joke? That thing that, that the, the kind of the groaning and the, the sighing, the, the kind of hissing, the rolling of the eyes, the whole, oh, that piece, that thing you just did? I want to suggest that today... In our culture, that is a kind of metaphor, what, that, that moment just then, the, uh, a metaphor that expresses our basic attitude toward fatherhood and toward, in general, manhood in our culture. There is a sense in which that, that kind of uh, dismissive, because there's a sense in which dadhood is caricatured in the culture today. Just turn on any TV show, any kids programming, whatever, and you watch and see if I'm not telling the truth. Every dad in every episode of every sitcom looks like a bumbling fool. He's portrayed as a buffoon. He's a fool who can't get it together. There's this caricature of dadhood in which the dad is this kind of bumbling, unexamined, uninterested, disconnected part of the family, this kind of idea that he's emotionally vacant, that he's relationally checked out, that he is somehow not engaged or even interested in being engaged in the activities of his wife or his, or his kids, and he's just kind of, kind of pulled the shades on everybody. There's that caricature, and I know what you're thinking, that you know somebody for whom that is probably a good description. 
I know. We all know people for whom that may describe dadhood. It may be that that was your dad growing up. It may be that that is your husband and you don't know what to do about it. It may be that that is you and you don't know what to do about it. And I'm here to tell you that I have a word of encouragement to dads and dadhood everywhere. Richard Rohr had this to say. He said, you know, there are two ways of being a prophet. One is to tell the enslaved that they are free. It's the difficult path of Moses. That's what Moses does. The second is to tell those who think they're free that they are, in fact, enslaved. This is the even more difficult path of Jesus. You can tell someone who is enslaved that they are free, and that's good news. But there's another pathway, and that is telling people who think they're free that they are, in fact, enslaved by something. Now, that's hard. And I want to suggest to my brothers here, and this, I'm, I, listen, you get it. I, I, you, you know me, and typically we don't get this focused on Father's Day, but the, the Lord has laid a burden on this pastor's heart, and I want to talk about and to and with dads today. And, and I want to tell you that I think a good number of my friends who are either dads or dads-to-be or just men in general are misunderstood like a bad dad joke and in many ways are enslaved by something that is so invisible and insidious that we don't know where the key is and don't know where the lock is because we're enslaved by something. You and I, as young boys, are, are raised to learn how to be strong on the outside. I mean, we know how to put on the armor and not show any of the chink in the armor, no vulnerabilities. I can be strong. I can have power and dominance. I can excel, win, achieve. You won't break me. We are, we are reinforced century after century after century on creating a strong exterior. We just do that well. But we have not done well at cultivating the interior of a man's heart. So it's no, and it's no wonder why most men don't go to church in America. Because at church, we do the work of the interior. We do heart work and soul work in here, and many men see that as touchy-feely. They see it as something that I don't want to get in touch that deeply with my emotions because they have not been told how or taught how to get in touch with the part of them that makes them them. And so we... We see people and think, oh, he's just angry. He's always angry. He's just fuming all the time when what if he's not angry, but he's sad. And he doesn't know how to show it, and it comes out mad. I believe that many men who, who portray this kind of strong exterior, I got this under control, I'm strong, I'm confident, maybe even a little bit arrogant, egocentric, are not confident at all, but are scared to death. And it comes masquerading as confidence, this fear. Because we don't teach our boys how to be vulnerable in the best possible way. We don't model for them what it looks like. Because we don't know. There was a documentary once on some bull elephants in Africa. And I don't know if it was in Tanzania or the Masai Mara in Kenya or Kruger National Park in South Africa, but in one of the big game parks, there was this herd of elephants, these bull elephants. They were all teenage male elephants. And they had gone wild. And they were starting to, 
to stomp on little Volkswagens and start to charge after people. They would knock over trees. They were violent. They would attack and kill smaller animals. They were antisocial. And that's not like an elephant. An elephant is a very social animal. So some park rangers came in to study what was going on, and they studied the history of that particular herd by talking to those who lived in the region for a long time. It turns out there were no old adult male bull elephants in the herd. They had all been killed. They had either died of old age or had been poached for their ivory, and these teenage bulls had no elder bulls to show them how to be an elephant. You know what they did? They bring in a handful of bull elephants, young male teenage elephants from another part of Africa, and they helicopter them in to that herd. And within a few weeks, everything had changed. And then they didn't do much. The big old elephants, the ones who had maturity, the ones who had scars from former battles, all they did was flap their ears and stump their feet a few times. I'm serious, and, and, and it took only a few weeks, and the young bull, they said, oh, so that is how an elephant is an elephant. And I am saying to you, beloved brothers and beloved sisters, that there is a swelling tide of young men in this country, young Husbands and husbands-to-be and fathers and fathers-to-be who are crying out for the elder bull elephants to step forward and show them how to be strong, not just externally, but to, to be strong from the inside out. And why am I telling you all this today? Because when we open up this chapter, that long chapter I just read a moment ago, Moses is out of control. Like a young bull elephant making big mistakes he's using the only fatherly model for leadership and manhood and fatherhood that he had ever seen pharaoh nobody knows much about his biological father in fact earlier on in exodus we're told that his biological father the only thing we know about him is that when he was young he married his aunt and then had Moses, and so he married his aunt, which means two things. One is he's from Alabama, and two is that, is that later in the law of Moses, that actually becomes a violation of the law, which as Moses is participating and listening to the law of God come down, he hears his old family of origin story. We all have stories. So we don't know much about his own family of origin other than to know this. He didn't grow up in his biological father's home because at the age of three, you remember, he was rescued from the water and he moved into the palace. And the only model for dadhood that he saw was Pharaoh. And his model of leadership was, I'm in charge, I'm control, I am strong, I am dominant. This is how you control people. Domination, violence, intimidation, fear. I got the con. I got the con. And here, as this text opens up, Moses, now free from Egypt, is in the midst of this wilderness journey, and the people are having problems, and one at a time they come, they line down the hall and around the building waiting to be heard by him, and he sits there, and you heard those, those personal pronouns. I am the one who has the answer. I listen to their problems. I take it to God. I interpret God's message to them. Me, 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 me. I got this. I got this. And one at a time, he's becoming 
Pharaoh. He's leading in a post-Pharaoh world like the only model of manhood that he had seen. And and he needs an intervention. And so his father-in-law shows up. His father-in-law comes up and he watches this for about a day. And then he says to him, you, this is crazy. Moses, you don't have to live and exist according to the only model that you used to know. There is another way to exist in this world, and that model is not your former enslavement. There's another way to be a man and another way to be a father, which leads us from dad jokes to father figures. Listen to the stories it picks up. Jethro shows up. The next day, Moses sat as judge for the people while the people stood around him from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that was, he was doing for his people, he said, what, is, what, are you, what are you doing for the people? Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me. I'm the man. This is how I, this is how I man my way through the wilderness. This is how I do it. Uh, They inquire of God, and when they come with a dispute, they come to me, and and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them, I tell them what the statutes and instructions of God are. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, stop acting like Pharaoh. He says to them, what are you doing? What what you're doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out and, and, and these people with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. The best line of that entire passage just then was a little obscure passage. It kind of blew right by it. It said that Jethro saw Moses. That Jethro saw Moses. Do you have anybody who has seen you? Do you know what it means to be seen? He looks at him, and he sees more than just his external behavior. He looks into Moses and recognizes there's something going on in Moses, and this is not Moses. He's acting like he, well, he's acting like we're still in Egypt. He's acting like we're still enslaved, and this is not the model for free people. He sees them. You know, I had some people who saw me when I was a kid. Listen, I had... I had Great parents, both of whom loved me, and they saw me. They raised. I was never in doubt, never wondered, never hungry. And yet, there were two or three men who saw me when I was young. And they saw something in me that I didn't see in me. Around ninth grade, they said, you know, you, might, you could be a leader, and you have a way of communicating. It's kind of rough, but we're going to... And so I joined this group, this key club, as part of the Kiwanis International. And, and they began to help me work on speeches, and we would travel around town, around state, around the country, and run for offices, and I'd get elected to this office, and another office, and another one, and, and what's interesting to me is I think about Exodus 18, it is not the trajectory of that story, but in a basement, once a month or so, with five or six people, three of those men, and my friends, my colleagues, we'd be preparing for a speech, ninth grade, 10th grade, and I had written it all out, and it sounded fine on paper, and I would walk up to practice. We had a practice lectern, and I'd walk up to the practice lectern, and they'd make me sit back down. Huh, why am I sitting down? They said, you walked up slouched. Oh. So then I would straighten myself up, and I'd walk up to the lectern again and try to get into my speech. I said, sit back down. I said, sit back down. Why? 
you stood up straight, but your head was down. So, oh, okay. So walk up, and I do it again, and I'm not kidding. I'm talking about, like, drills. I felt like I was at Paris Island or something. I was like, there's nonstop drills until... And they made me sit down, and I would sit down, and I sat down wrong. How do you sit down wrong? How do you sit down wrong? I'm in there, and I'm, I'm sitting down to get up to my practice speech, and, and as I'm sitting down, I'm just waiting, just waiting, just waiting. And they made me practice sitting with one foot a little further ahead than the other, upright, waiting, so I can rise and take on the speech. And they're watching from the audience, see. And then I go through the speech, and I'm talking about hours and hours and hours of developing muscle memory, and they're pouring themselves into me because they see something. They said, when you get up there now and you're giving your speech, I'd get up there, I'd got to walk down, I got to sit down right, I got it all right, and I'd get up and I'd practice the speech. And I would just... I would just barrel right into the speech. And they said, no, 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 that's not what you do. That's not what you do. When you get up there, you stop. And you make them watch you take a deep breath. And you look somebody in the face. As if to say, we're about to do something here. And again and again and again, they see me. And the result of having been seen has an effect every seven days still in my life. Ken DeCreasy Dean is a phenomenal professor and youth ministry specialist. You know, she said about all adolescents, but today I want you to hear it through the lens of the young boys who are trying to become young men who become mature bull elephants. She says, this is the mantra of all adolescents. I see you see me. I become the me I think you see. I see you seeing me, and I'm going to become whatever version of me that I think it is that you see. So my question to you is, yes, has anybody seen you? But maybe the more important question, because some some of us go through all of life having never been seen. I get it. I get it. And we've all got stories we can tell, but maybe the most important story is, has God put anybody in your life for you to see? Who do you see? Because I promise you, God has placed somebody in your life in order for you to look at them and see them for more than what they can see in themselves. And in so doing, there's something that's provoked inside. You know what happened with Moses? I mean, Jethro didn't do much. All he did was hold a mirror up to Moses and say, you know, this is what you're behaving like. This is not not how we live post-Pharaoh. He didn't tell him anything spectacular, but he provoked something in Moses that changed everything, which leads us to another part of our sermon. You know the most important thing that he did is not what he said to Moses. Jethro, you should organize in different groups. It's not what he said, it's what he did. He brought his grandkids. Well, now we're just causing trouble. When you bring the grandkids into the mix. They bring Moses' kids and he brings with them these and he has this advice, Moses, you don't have to be that way. That's not what a man looks like if you're truly free. But after he stopped talking, he he brings the two sons forward. Two sons who Moses had named when they were born. And I want you to dig into this because this is powerful. Their names, as you know, mean something and, and it's the man who names the child. And so Moses knew what to name the children, and this is what he named them. He named the first one Gershom. 
which literally means I have been an alien in a foreign land. See, Gershom was born when, when Moses was lost and out in the wilderness, and he was like, I don't have any place to be. I feel like I don't belong anywhere. I feel like nobody will claim me as my people. I am like a, uh, I'm an alien. So he named his kid Alien. As time passes and the Lord begins to do the Lord's work, he has another kid, and he names this other kid Eliezer. And Eliezer literally means the God of my father was my help. So to summarize, his two boys are named Alien and Help. Alien and Help. And listen, you and I look at the page and we're like, okay, well, that's kind of creepy. But think about it for a moment because if, if Jethro says, my words aren't going to do anything here, watch this. And he brings Alien and Help and Moses sees them. Hadn't seen them in a while because Moses, you know, travels for work. And here he sees his boys again and he's like I remember alien and I remember help and something begins to stir within him you know what stirs within him he's aware that that is the only way to live in this world as aliens with God's help that is the way of the wilderness and there is no other way that you and I were never intended to be so comfortable in this world that we just kind of blend in and look like everybody else we're always meant to live as aliens in this world. So if the world around us doesn't care about injustice, if the world around us is racist or sexist, if the world around us treats one another uh, as if we are the, the, the scum of the earth, we are to act like aliens in the world. We are to be the aliens who live and exist differently in the world. But the flip side of that good news is that when we live as aliens, we don't live alone. We live with the help of God we live as aliens with help and so my encouragement to dads today is this if you feel as if your life is so isolated that that it's like an alien you don't feel like you have a home you don't feel like anybody understands then my word to you is good because you are meant to be an alien just like me and every other mortal on the planet we are meant to not fit in this world but here's the good news you are not alone in your alienation but you have the help of God so my question my comfort to you as dads as men is this yes you're called to be an alien but you have God's help but here's my challenge to you what are you doing dads what are you doing to teach your children that we are meant to be aliens what are you doing to model for them that we don't belong fitting in in every possible way in this world are you willing to teach and take the risk of teaching your children that we're meant to be a little bit uncomfortable? That we're meant to somehow not fit in with everybody? That we're to love everybody, but we're not to fit in with those who demean and put down. We're not meant to, to just laugh at the jokes that diminish the, the humanity of another person. We're not meant to somehow just fit in. We're meant to be aliens. What are you doing, dads, to teach them to stand out in a world like we live in. And on the flip side, what are you doing to show them how to seek the help of God? If we're aliens with God's help, what are you doing to model what it looks like to seek out the help of God? Are you praying together? Are you, are you coming to church together? And by coming to church, I don't, I don't mean make sure they're up so mom can take them while you get an early tea time. I'm talking about are you getting them ready and coming and showing them this is what we do. This is how this family rolls. This is how you become a bull elephant. 
Because in this world, we will be aliens, but we will not be aliens alone. We will be with one another, and we will have the help of the God who has called us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Good and loving God, we, gosh, this is our prayer today, that we recognize, we recognize that there are many among us, and you don't have to be a dad, you don't have to be a man to recognize the, the kind of tension and struggle that we're talking about here. We recognize, Lord, that there may be some here on this campus for whom it's easy to be strong on the exterior, but we have no clue how to become vulnerable to you on the interior. Lord, we pray that you would put people on our minds, one another on our minds and hearts, that we may learn to see each other, and in seeing each other, set one another free. We pray that you would show us what it looks like to live as aliens in this world, even... If being an alien means that we cry out against the injustices that have built the scaffolding of the infrastructure that holds our comfort together, show us how to be aliens with your help in this broken world. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.